healthy, they're going to want to listen today. Absolutely. <laughs> they're going to want to listen today because this is by far one of the most uh, special episodes we've had. No pressure whatsoever. No pressure. So allow me to introduce our special guest and, and we'll see, well, it's probably going to be in our title somewhere, but representing District 36 from part of Portland, we are so honored to have Representative Michael Brennan with us today. You, I'm not sure if our um, curriculum colleagues throughout the state realize, um, but I would like to do a little brief intro if that's okay, Matt. The floor is yours. I'm, I'm okay. just a passenger on this ship. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Representative Brennan returned to the legislature in 2018, having previously served four terms in the main house and three in the main Senate. And he is our house chair of the education committee, something we are very proud of. And we certainly enjoy stalking, I mean, supporting for sure. <laughs> um, during his previous terms in the House, Representative Brennan chaired the Education Committee and the Joint Select Committee on Substance Use and served on the Health and Human Services and the Business and Economic Development Committees. When he was a state senator, he served as majority leader and chaired the Health and Human Services Committee, the Joint Select Committee on Health Care Reform and the Blue Ribbon Commission on Maine Care Reform. So he brings such a wealth of knowledge to his work and we certainly are thankful. During this last term, he served on the Education and the Health Coverage Insurance and Financial Services Committees and co-chaired the Juvenile Justice Task Force. He is a licensed clinical social worker and has been an adjunct faculty member at both USM and UNE. And he served as mayor of Portland from 2011 to 2015, when luckily for him, he ended up running alongside me the turkey trot one of those years. <laughs> no, he doesn't remember, but I certainly do. And Representative Brennan lives in Portland with his wife of more than 40 years. They have two grown children and one grandchild. And we are so, so thankful to have you here with us today. Well, thank you very much to be here. It's a tremendous honor and I look forward to this. And Julie, are you gonna run in the turkey trot this year? Uh, I am nursing an injury, but if, uh, if you're going to be there, I might, you know, toughen up and join you. Well, I'm I'm thinking about it. All you right. could do I'll, that, if you're nursing an injury, you could do that thing where the two of you like tie your two legs together and you do that <laughs> simultaneous run thing. That would work well. Sure, we'll think about that. There you go. So I'm going to get us started off. Our first question for you, Representative Brennan, please tell us about your journey into legislation and specifically onto the Joint Standing Committee of Education and Cultural Affairs. Sure, um, and, and thank you for the question. Um, I, I, I had uh, uh, two aunts uh, that both went to the University of Maine at Farmington uh, in the 1930s when women didn't go to college and um, they certainly uh, uh, came from uh, backgrounds in Portland that you wouldn't necessarily expect them uh, to both be go to college. They both went to college at uh, Farmington. They both graduated and became teachers. And one of my aunts uh, taught for 45 years. And in 1968, she was the main teacher of the year. And uh, when I moved to Maine, I lived with her for uh, uh, about a year. Uh, she was still teaching. And uh, we had conversations all the time about uh, education and about teaching. I had an undergraduate degree in education. So I was looking initially when I came to Maine uh, as an adult uh, uh, to teach. And I ended up um, actually doing more community organizing and working for a community action agency. And many of the programs that I worked with, I worked for United Way in Portland for seven years. Um, it was just over and over and over again, you saw the value of education. And when people were unable to finish high school um, or go on to additional training or some type of education, um, their lives were oftentimes very, very difficult. So when I got to the legislature, um, the opportunity to be on the education committee my second term uh, was offered to me and I, I accepted that. And I had the opportunity to be on the committee for six years and uh, chair the committee the final two years that I was in the house. When I went to the Senate, um, I uh, served as chair of the Health and Human Services Committee, but I was the second Senator on the committee. 
So uh, I've had the opportunity to serve uh, 12 years on the education committee. Wow. And um, uh, again, it, uh, when you look at the role and the impact it plays across the state of Maine, shaping people's lives and influencing people's lives, uh, I feel very fortunate uh, to be on the committee. Uh, I've also had the opportunity to teach at both the University of New England and um, the University of Southern Maine, um, as you mentioned. Social, social work and public policy at the undergraduate level and the graduate level. And um, you again see uh, how important uh, the role of education and the ability to provide education to people and the difference it makes in their lives. Representative Brennan, in my household, we have this expression, mentally prepare me, or I need to mentally prepare you. So I'm hoping you can mentally prepare me. So <laughs> Taking that respite from legislature and coming back in 2018, what does the future hold? Like how many more terms can you serve? Because we certainly love your experience on well, the education committee. Well, I, I have another next year will be the end of my second term and you can serve up to four consecutive terms of two years. So I would have four years uh, uh, on top of the, the four years that, or, or the, Two terms that I've served at this point. So um, uh, uh, next March is the time that people would uh, gather signatures and uh, make a decision to run again. As I mentioned to you earlier, uh, before <laughs> we went live, um, I just spent the last six weeks on the redistricting commission, and we redrew uh, the hundred. Uh, district lines for 151 House seats, 35 Senate seats, and the two congressional seats. And those are, um, uh, on Wednesday, they were uh, approved by the state legislature with over a two-thirds vote, which means that wow. those will be the lines that we'll be using uh, January 1st when people register or start to gather signatures to run for the legislature in the election of November 2022. That's incredible. That's that's an amazing amount of work, and I can imagine that that's going to have some could potentially have some real systemic change that's going to happen. Not, I mean, because the way that the legislature is going to be made up, but I'm thinking in terms of there's been you know not just in urban Maine if you can call it that, but then also very very rural Maine, like a, a, the lines that must be getting changed up in that area, those areas. <laughs> Matt, Matt, you're absolutely right, and um, and that's why every ten we. The state of Maine, uh, we do this every 10 years. Sure. Uh, this year, it was delayed because the census data was delayed coming to the state. Sure. We only had 45 days and what normally would take six months uh, to complete the task. Oh. But, but you're absolutely right that uh, the beginning of January, when people decide to run for the legislature, um, it, it's going to have enormous consequences. Some people may decide not to run again because the lines got drawn differently. Sure. Um, other people may decide to run uh, because they say now a district is uh, favorable to them in terms of uh, the potential election. And um, uh, the, the composition of the legislature uh, certainly will look different um, by November of uh, 2022. So I'd be remiss, Representative Brennan, if I didn't share that how you probably felt through this process and how you're feeling now is how many of our teachers and administrators have felt through COVID, right? So it's, uh, I mean, the exhaustion, the not knowing how things are going to turn out. I think it's a, it's a proper analogy. Yeah. Well, um, you know, um, Julie, I, I, the only word that I keep using repeatedly to talk about what teachers and school personnel have done since March of 2022 is heroic. Um, every day people get up, they go to school, um, they um, put their own health and well-being um, on the line mm -hmm. uh, in order to make sure that schools are open and that students are taught and that uh, uh, there's a meaningful experience. We were fortunate uh, a year ago that close to 90% of schools in the state of Maine were open, 90 to 95%. Obviously, a significant portion of that was virtual um, and or hybrid. And, um, but but the, the transition, it wasn't even a transition, it, it was, uh, you know, an immediate uh, change that teachers had to make uh, going from in-classroom learning to virtual learning 
uh, I said it was astonishing what what was accomplished. And and again, I, I've taught, um, and and if I had to make that type of transition technology, um, it would have been a huge um, sure. uh, effort for me to uh, be able to pull that off. And you know, I'm I'm uh, my teaching style is is very much personal and in person. And for many teachers, their strength is being able to have that interaction with students and to have to make that transition to a virtual learning mode uh, was, was uh, very difficult, but teachers made the transition. They were successful. Um, we clearly this year are dealing more with learning loss uh, issues and we will for uh, the foreseeable future. But I, I, I think the, um, you know, the good thing, the bad thing about the pandemic that we're still right in the middle of uh, has shown to people the value of teachers, the value of schools, and, and how the structure of school and learning uh, really contributes to the well-being of children, families, and the community. And we saw what happened um, when schools did not play the uh, role that they had played in the past. And at the same time, uh, we've also learned that there are ways that we can teach and there are innovations that we've learned uh, through uh, hybrid, through virtual learning uh, that we'll be able to employ into the future uh, that should be uh, very helpful in how we develop uh, future curriculum and, and discuss pedagogy uh, going forward um, uh, for our public school system and the university system. Absolutely. So well, I was just going to say, Matt, before I let Matt ask you another question, okay. I want to let you in on a little secret. And it, this is going to make you look very good in educational circles. We don't use the term learning loss. I, I was uh, told that repeatedly uh, <laughs> last year. And um, the commissioner uh, on a number of occasions would say to me we don't, that students are learning all the time and consequently we do not have learning loss. Right. So um, sometimes I lapse back yeah. into my prior um, uh, vocabulary and I, I do recognize that students are learning all the time. Maybe um, we should talk about, about academic loss or uh, there's a potential um, uh, circumstance of uh, uh, just achievement issues. Yeah, I think I would. I would also encourage us to have the conversation of looking instead of looking at it from a deficiency model, which is a loss or a recovery. Look right. at it from a um, proficiency model in a way. I don't know what that's a, that's a word, um, but to look at what like acceleration. So if we're not looking at recovery or we're not looking at loss, we're looking. No, we're just going to try to speed up. We're just going to try to make learning happen faster or more accelerated um, for all kids and i think that one of the well, things that you said a minute ago was absolutely spot on which is um that we've learned a lot about education we've learned about what what it really means what it takes to do um but we also have learned that there are so many different ways of connecting with all kids and all families and all caretakers and all if we, if we really believe that all means all we have the innovations and tools and mindsets to do that Right. And, and Matt, you know, a lot of educational research shows that uh, 60 to 70 percent of learning occurs outside the classroom. Oh, um, sure. And, and, and back to Julie's point um, that even though what may have been learned in classrooms over the last year was a little bit different, um, other learning opportunities and other settings uh, provided different experiences for students. Um, so one of the things that um, I hope to look for in the next year or in coming years is looking at ways that we can standardize out of school, out of classroom learning um, so that students can demonstrate uh, in the community or other educational settings learning that has occurred that they could get um, uh, credit for and that we don't look to just what happens within a classroom uh, as the only space um, that a student learns. At the same time, um, I, and I think I, I think there's a positive development, but it's certainly been um, highlighted during the pandemic. Um, is that over the last four or five years, one of the big differences for me coming back to the legislature uh, from the 1990s, we almost never talked about social emotional learning. 
now social emotional learning is a key factor in um, discussing academic achievement. And um, as we've entered into the fall and even at the end of last year in the legislative session, we had uh, considerable discussion about mental health strategies and interventions, uh, recognizing the fact that students uh, for good reason were dealing with anxiety, depression and other issues mm. in ways that they hadn't before. And um, so, so I, 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 I think, um, you know, it's important for us that we, when we talk about uh, again, uh, uh, learning issues, we're also putting them in the context of what the whole student is looking like in terms of emotional, uh, social emotional learning. Julie and I have talked a lot about over the year, over the, this last year plus about SEL and the importance of it. And especially when we went out in terms of, um, like March, 2020, when everything shut down and everyone is the, 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 the most important thing to do was to make connection and to make sure that we are maintaining the connection between home and school um, and to make sure that the wellness is there, not just for our students, but for our staff. Um, and that is, it, it's, it's so refreshing to hear um, that that's a real, not only core from the DOE, because we've seen that from the DOE, but also to see that lens being uh, taken at the, uh, at, at the Cultural Affairs Committee, at a Cultural, because um, if it's having a place there, then that means it's really having this importance, um, a weight put to it. And you're not going to be able to get um, deep academic knowledge in an unsafe and unhealthy environment right. and an unsupportive environment. And so we have to look at that whole child perspective, um, not just worrying about things like test scores. Yeah. Well, um... I'm, I'm happy to say that uh, one bill that I sponsored that was passed this session, uh, we now have done away with the SAT um, as a way to measure student performance. And as you probably know, that was instituted back in 2005, 2006 yep. as part of No Child Left Behind. We're the first, uh, one of the first states in the country to use the SAT for that measure. Um, I didn't think it was a good idea at that time. <laughs> um, I agree. Uh, I was there with you. And, and now we, we, we just have resources overwhelming that it's biased based on gender, race, and income. Indeed. And why would we use uh, that kind of test for any type of uh, uh, assessment of, of student learning? Right. So now, uh, certainly if individual school districts want to use the SAT for whatever reason they want to, or people apply to college, they can do that. Um, but it won't be used uh, statewide as an assessment um, uh, tool. Sure. I, yeah, I actually got but, that question. I got that question a lot from some other curriculum leaders as they were, um, as the process was going down, like, are they really just saying that the SAT can't be used at all in schools? No, and I was like, no, that's not what the bill says. It says no. you can't use it in terms of the statewide assessment, which right. we all kind of agreed. It never should have been done in the first place. Um, cause it wasn't an achievement measure. Um, and so like, that was one of those, one of those questions that kept coming up that I, that I, remember just having discussions with a lot of curriculum leaders and assistant superintendents and whatnot about because that's who we who are who we kind of aim at that's that's our target audience uh, are the educational leaders we do have a lot of teachers yep. and we have some folks out of state who listen to us for some reason I don't really understand why that is because <laughs> um, we're so main focused but um, but it, it's it's surprising to me to know how to see um, well, actually not surprising because it's it's been um, shrouded in a bit of mystery over the years how many folks just don't get the process? They don't see what it is. And they'll like, they might see a certain snippet and think, oh, well, we're, we're saying we're getting rid of the SAT. We're getting rid of it entirely. Well, that's not what the bill says. So um, can you just talk a little bit um, about how you become involved in those, like that SAT bill, or that, was that something that you just like were interested? How do you become involved in those kind of bills and that process? Um, well, well, you know, clearly being on the committee, um, you see different issues that um, arise during the discussion, discussion of other bills um, and, and uh, issues that just come forward in the community that then prompt you uh, to think about uh, putting in legislation. Uh, so, so just very quickly, and this is a very quick uh, summary. There, there is a, a document, it's called How a Bill Becomes a Law, and people can access that 
uh, through the legislature um, on the internet. But at the beginning of any quote regular session, and that was uh, last uh, 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 January, uh, uh, legislator, any legislator, those 186 people that are elected to the House and the Senate can put in a bill and they can put in as many bills as they'd like to put in about anything they'd like to. <laughs> um, regardless uh, if they have any evidence or regardless if they have any kind regardless, of- Regardless, that's correct. Um, the, 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 they, have, they have the right uh, to put in any bill. <laughs> and uh, there are bills that are put in that are unconstitutional. Um, there are bills that uh, violate uh, current law, They whatever. Um, but those bills go in, um, they then um, come out of the revisor's office. The revisor's office is charged with drafting those bills. Typically, people in the revisor's office flag things if they are unconstitutional, if there are other legal issues, but it doesn't mean necessarily that it has to be withdrawn or stop at that point. Okay. Um, the bill then, uh, the sponsor gets co-sponsors. It is then referred to a committee uh, by the legislature. It either goes to health and human services, education, agriculture, uh, depending on the topic and the statute that it addresses. And then uh, the, the key part of uh, uh, the bill that's referred to a committee then has a public hearing. And during the public hearing, any member of the public, and I'll state that again, any member of the public can come and testify on that bill. Mm. And they can say, I think it's a great idea because of this. I think it's a bad idea because of that. Um, People um, hire lobbyists uh, to come and testify on their behalf uh, or to testify and provide some particular expertise um, on a bill and, or to provide supportive research um, or, or data. Uh, or you just have people that show up and say, um, based on my personal experience, I think this is a good idea and it should become law or it's a bad idea. And I hope the legislature doesn't enact it. Uh, once that happens, uh, after the public hearing, there's then a work session, and there could be multiple work sessions, and the committee then takes a vote. Um, there are 13 people on all committees. Maine is somewhat unique in the country in that we have what is called joint standing committees, and well, so that's... the committees are made up uh, both of senators yeah. as well as House members. That's why there's a House chair and a Senate, mayor, uh, Senate uh, chair. In many other states, they mimic uh, the federal government model, which has a separate House committee and a separate Senate committee. So if you went to Massachusetts, you would see a House Education Committee and a Senate um, Education Committee, and they would then have to um, work to reconcile the bills. So in Maine, we just have one joint standing committee on education. We take a vote. And uh, depending on what the vote is, whether it's a majority ought to pass, majority ought not to pass, unanimously pass, unanimously ought not to pass, seven in favor, six against, <laughs> um, the vote can go any number of different ways. It is then reported to either the House or the Senate, depending on if the sponsor of the bills in the House or the Senate, it starts in either one of those. It has to get a majority vote in the House, majority vote in the Senate and uh, ultimately be signed by the governor. I have, so, two, I have two I have two follow-up questions. Yep. That I like to, one is about the public hearings, yep. and the second is about work sessions. Mm -hmm. um, so public hearings, have you been, have you seen over the last year and a half, what's the, I know that a lot of, um, a lot of bills fly under a lot of radar. There's so many bills that come out. I mean, 200 plus bills in a session is absurd. Um, well, and we had so, 120 bills this session before the education committee that's a that's that's in, that's insane that's an so that's insane. 120 public hearings <laughs> right and, and so have you seen any kind of uh increase or decrease or kind of stay the same about the amount of public hearings uh, or public hearing testimony um in relation to what as we've been before covid and during covid well um it, it's a little hard to um uh to gauge that at this point uh, certainly, the, an argument has been made that with the virtual um, uh, sessions of public hearing, that it actually gives the, the public more opportunity to testify and participate mm -hmm. because people don't have to drive from Presque Isle. They don't have to drive from Portland. Uh, mm -hmm. They don't have to drive from 
uh, parts of the state uh, and show up at the state house in person to testify. They can simply sign on and, and testify, log on um, uh, to the education committee and have their testimony uh, recorded live through through a Zoom uh, setup. Um, so uh, I, 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 I would say it's, it, it's hard for me to gauge and say whether it's been up or down. Um, we okay. still have, we had a set of bills on vaccination um, that we had over 80 people, 70 to 80 people that testify yeah. uh, on Zoom for that. But when it was held live two years ago, there were 300 people um, that showed up. Oh, I remember that one. We, <laughs> we, we covered that one. And I remember, actually, I, I got onto the live stream at 10 o'clock at night. And just, just kind of see, it's got to be over by now. Nope, it was still going strong. One o'clock in the morning. I remember, I remember actually, I, I looked the next day and I listened to some of the back, back when I said at 12 o'clock midnight, y'all did like a stretch break. And I was like, oh my gosh, they're still going with this. Um, and yeah, then we so that, had a build a session again that I sponsored on charter schools, and there were uh, over fifty people um, that testified uh, on that bill. And, and then we'll have other bills where we'll uh, have the typical main school board management, MEA, right. teachers union, uh, superintendents. They'll be the um, people who will show up to testify because they tend to show up and testify on all things that are always um, there. They, they, they think they have a direct interest in, in, in K through 12 education. So um, I, I think going forward, um, we will be doing more legislative business on Zoom. Um, at the same time, I will welcome uh, the opportunity in January uh, and have the hope that we'll be able to go back in person and have that type uh, uh, of engagement. There, I, I will say unequivocally, and this is just my opinion, that it um, uh, uh, trying to do policy making, passing laws, and dealing with these issues on Zoom uh, is not optimal. And, and the interaction with other legislatures, legislators, other elected officials, DOE officials, teachers, it, uh, just adds to the process in ways that you can't um, uh, get on Zoom. Uh, I also think that in some instances, we probably had more divided reports uh, simply because the committee was on a Zoom platform and our ability to talk to each other, compromise, work things out, say, what do you think about the, um, uh, was not that we just couldn't do that. Sure. And um, oftentimes that's the key ingredient when you're making uh, good public policy is to have that type of give and take. And uh, oftentimes, again, that was compromised on a, on a Zoom platform. At the same time, I got to say, it's just absolutely amazing, if not miraculous, uh, that we were able to get through 120 bills, uh, pass a budget, and pass the laws that we did pass, uh, given the limitations of uh, yeah. a, a, a virtual legislature. It was definitely fun to follow. Right, especially when I could increase the. Well, that, that tells me a lot about your social life and professional life. It's it's really terrible. It's it's all bad. It's it's just it's all bad. You know, the only sunshine in my life is is when I get to talk with Julie. Other than that, it's just like in the in the ninth level of the abyss. So I have I have two things to say. One, have you ever listened back to to um, your sessions at two speed? Because that's no. how I got through a lot of them, and it is kind of comical. I just want you to know. <laughs> it is. I will say that. You, <laughs> and the other thing, thing I would think that you've all remained much more healthy via Zoom because when the sessions first started, everyone who came to you was like, "Oh, I wish I could bring this from European Bakery, or I could bring right. this to you from, you know, down uh, east." So. Well, well, that that is quite true. The a legislative tradition is that if you once you're out of the legislature and you come back to testify before a committee, in particular, if you served on that committee, you then have to bring a treat uh, yeah. to the committee, either cookie, cake, or something else. Uh, fortunately, in the last <clears throat> 10 years, they, be, the, they have become far more healthy uh, and more local um, than they uh, used to be. But uh, yeah, that is a tradition. But, you know, Julie, I got to tell you, on the other hand, um, uh, when I am in the state house, and I've kept track of this, I walk uh, anywhere from a mile and a mile and a half a day yeah. in the state house, back and forth between committee hearings, 
uh, between the state capitol and everything else. And when you're on Zoom, you lose that. Uh, <laughs> Very true. That that, yeah. that that mileage in terms of walking. I bet. So the other so, question I had, sorry, I want to ask just a follow up about the about the work session, yeah. um, yep. because I find the, the public hearings um, fascinating, but we're also really interested in what happens at the work session, because it seems like a lot of your, your, your legislative analysts, by the way, are amazing people. They, they are, are they are they fantastic are, at what they do. Talented. Yep. Incredible, incredible team there. And what um, what I'm what I'm wondering is like the process that goes into when there's been a public hearing and you've heard all the 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 people say what they want to say and you hear all that and then you go to the committee and you go into the work session and then the bill completely go, does like a 180 or completely right. changes yep. can you talk about how how it, that happens why that might happen sometimes because to be honest sure. that's how this podcast started yeah it was because sure. of one of those bills um just a a small technicality the work session um members of the public are not able to speak unless they're right. called upon uh by a committee member so it, it's uh typically the opportunity for the committee to talk amongst itself um and to ask follow-up questions of both the staff uh department of education or other uh, uh people that are directly related to the bill uh so it truly is a work session um in, in, in that respect um and uh, a lot of different things happen at, at different, I mean, um, one of the things I say to people all the time about the legislature, if you deal in black and white, uh, you will have a hard time in the legislature um, because the legislature deals in ambiguities. And um, so we might have, Matt, a public hearing on a bill, as you pointed out, that somebody put in um, that is, against the law or it's against current statute or against research or whatever. And so uh, when the bill comes up for work session, you can either just vote to not to pass it or you might rewrite it or redirect uh, it in a way that you think uh, addresses a problem that somebody um, has brought forward and reflect is reflective of the public hearing and of other uh, data that might come before the committee. So um, one of the things it's very fluid uh, that you'll find uh, many, many times, I do this all the time, I'll put a bill forward, have the public hearing, listen to the debate at the public hearing, and then offer an amendment at the work session that reflects um, that um, uh, uh, the public hearing of things I didn't know about or things I missed um, uh, in drafting the bill. So that's why uh, a lot of times you can see um, uh, bills that are uh, significantly uh, refocused uh, at the work session. I'll give you one quick example. This last session, I had a bill in um, on reading proficiency. And um, right now in the state of Maine, depending on what metrics you use, you, what reports you look at, um, at the end of third grade, we have about 50% of students uh, that are reading um, at, at third grade, uh, well, beginning of fourth grade level or reading proficiently. Um, so I wanted to increase that. And I put a bill in um, that just picked a number and said by five, in five years, we wanted to get 75%. Um, and the Department of Education had to figure out a plan uh, for how that was gonna happen. And immediately uh, every stakeholder came to me and said, Mike, we're not gonna support that bill. Um, the, you know, <laughs> the, you just can't pick 75%, yeah. you know. Um, and I said, okay, and, and we sat down and I sat down with MEA, school board management, with superintendents, principals, with the curriculum uh, directors <laughs> um, and everybody else. And, and we said, um, I, I said, what's gonna work here? And uh, we ended up passing a bill, which I'm very excited about. I hope you'll be excited about. Maybe I can come back and talk about it later. Um, but the Department of Education is doing an assessment across the state uh, to look at the methodologies that are being used across the state to teach reading. And um, we're going to look at what works, what doesn't work, where we're making progress and where we're not making progress. That report is coming back to the legislature in January. And hopefully we're going to be able to direct some resources and uh, direct uh, some strategic efforts uh, to improve uh, reading proficiency across the state. 
And as you probably know, um, students that are not reading at grade level by the end of third grade, beginning of fourth grade, tend not to catch up. Hard and time, it yeah. disproportionately affects uh, children of color and uh, children that come from disadvantaged backgrounds. Yep. So if we can look at ways of uh, increasing reading proficiency across the board, um, it's going to have uh, multiple positive uh, uh, effect. And, and, you know, anecdotally, from what I can hear, there are some places uh, in the state that we do a really good job with reading and other places uh, we struggle. And so if we can put more attention to those places uh, that are struggling and we can put best practice uh, and research-based approach um, uh, to increase reading proficiency, uh, that's a win for the state. But if my bill, as I had drafted, had gone forward to the public hearing, um, <laughs> uh, it, it would have been voted down and it would have been opposed by almost everybody. Sure. By, by stepping back and talking to stakeholders and people involved and coming up with amendment, it, it, uh, uh, it, it didn't unanimously pass, but it passed with a, with a big bipartisan majority. And hopefully we'll have an opportunity to come back and have that discussion uh, this session. Yeah, I have to say that was just one of many pivots that you took that we were just so impressed and so thankful for your openness and your flexibility. Um, I, I know I'm cognizant of our time and I know how busy you are. We really could talk to you for such a long time. We're so, so excited to have you on. Um, Matt mentioned that it's the fifth season of Maine Education Matters, but this is only my um, second year. So it's my first four 130th. And this is the second session of the 130th. Well, well, we haven't. Um, but, or it, it begins January, January, is that January. right? <laughs> right, yes. Can you help us understand um, what can we expect the difference between the second session and the first session so that we can sort of prepare to make sure we're supporting our colleagues? What do we need sure. to know about the second session? Well, in the second session, um, the bills can only be introduced if they're, quote, emergency measures. And uh, the deadline for submitting those bills was September 24th. And uh, now legislative council, uh, there are 10 people on legislative council will meet and decide whether or not to allow those bills uh, in. I have four bill titles uh, that I've requested to put in. I might get one in, two in, I might not get any of them in. So what you can expect um, if you were to look at that final list those will be the bills that would be considered by the Education Committee and by the legislature um, in January. Then uh, there's a whole uh, hundreds of other bills that were carried over from this current session. So they were not, they were basically tabled uh, in June and they right. were said we're not uh, acting on them and they will be considered uh, during the next session. Uh, so those bills, you could look at those, and that would give you an idea of um, uh, other issues that will be discussed. But finally, um, as you probably know from the last meeting of the Education Committee in July, we have over 50 different reports. Yeah. Um, and and um, uh, uh, work that we've asked the department uh, to uh, uh, weigh in on. And uh, they will be making those reports back to the Education Committee in January and February. So we have this report on reading uh, proficiency. I have another bill uh, that's being studied on how we close the achievement gap relative to race right. and income um, uh, next session by providing additional resources and strategies for school districts that have significant populations that are either um, uh, the students are financially disadvantaged or they, there's racial inequity that will be able to close that achievement gap. And I think when, if people looked at uh, the achievement gap based on race and based on income, uh, the, it, it would take your breath away when you start to see uh, across the state uh, the impact of that. So hopefully we're gonna um, spend some time figuring out how we can be more tactical and more strategic um, and, and addressing that issue. Then we have uh, three bills that are coming back to us, major reports about uh, child development services. And um, 
we're, we've had a child development system, service system that has been problematic for the last 25 or 30 years. And um, we've set the stage uh, to have a major discussion about how to revamp and redirect uh, that system over the next two or three years uh, to make it uh, more responsive to children and to uh, uh, the families. So um, I, I think if you look at the bills that are being submitted by legislators, I think if you look at uh, the carryover bills and you look at the studies in the report, that's going to give you a pretty good idea of uh, the issues that we're going to deal with. One bill I put in, um, we had a report from MEPRI, which is our research arm, mm -hmm. and uh, it indicated that many school districts across the state are not fully utilizing main care reimbursement for social um, uh, for for uh, case management, for occupational therapy, for uh, mental health issues, uh, for a variety of different reasons, they're not utilizing that. And if we could get to a place of uh, uh, appropriately utilizing Medicaid reimburse main care reimbursement, uh, that would free up a lot of local property tax uh, money and also give more resources to school districts across the state of Maine. So. Uh, I, again, we have a, a number of important issues that are coming back for discussion. However, <laughs> uh, the caution I, I would have for you is this is also the short session. And right. by statute, uh, we're supposed to be done around mid-April. Um, and um, so the pace of the session is, is much, much um, um, <laughs> faster. <laughs> it's like running the last mile in the race, uh, Julie. Um, than, it, <laughs> the, than it is um, uh, the first mile of the marathon. And last session, uh, we did deal with the budget, several budget uh, items. And uh, we were in session from June, uh, January until mid-June, actually the end of June. This session is an election year. Uh, people want to get through uh, very quickly. We don't have a major uh, budget that we have to pass. And so the, the pace of the session is from day one. Uh, we're moving very quickly on public hearings, work sessions, and, and bills. Public hearings, work sessions, you're going to hear all these 50 report backs they're going to be right. hearing on, on those. That's correct. And I'm assuming that those, um, those report backs are hopefully going to be um, informing future legislation? Correct. Many of the bills, uh, what we do is that when we write uh, or the bills and have the bills passed for study, we then authorize uh, the education committee to report out a bill relative to that study. So it, it's not mandatory that we report out the bill, sure. but we have the opportunity that if a report comes back on reading proficiency that says if we spend a million dollars doing this, this, and this, um, that would uh, be very helpful. We then can produce a bill out of the committee uh, that reflects that report. Does that have happen in this session or can that be pushed to like the 131st? Uh, we, no, once, once the session comes to an end, those bills, uh, the bills that are in that session don't um, get carried over sure. uh, to the next session. What about you like- could, you, you could authorize a, a study commission uh, that we report to the next legislature but typically, uh, legislative leadership and the legislature doesn't like to do that yeah. um, because you're passing it on to the next legislature. And, you okay. know, um, one thing, uh, I mean, I think people probably understand this, but um, anything that's passed in one session can be undone um, in another session. Um, and then at the same time, there were bills that I had passed in the 1990s that are still uh, you know, part of state law, and and um, the 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 uh, the the good thing about the legislative process is that it it can be fluid and it can be flexible and it can be responsive. Uh, if we make a mistake, we do have the opportunity to fix it, uh, uh, probably within a year cycle. Matt, I do have other questions I'd love to ask, but I think we've probably met um, our time quota and. Yeah. Representative Brennan, I am so thankful. We are 
so appreciative of your expertise, your institutional knowledge on that committee, your respect for educators. Um, we, we have been very, very, very impressed and very thankful for all that you have done. Well, thank you, uh, Julie and Matt, for this opportunity. And, um, you know, it, it's just, um, I, I, I know the legislative process, uh, we take for granted in terms of understanding it because we live it every day. Right. And that it can be confusing to people in the public. Um, I can't tell you how many people that uh, come up to Augusta and they spend a day in Augusta and they go, I, I, I just can't believe that um, <laughs> the, the day I spent. Um, and, and if you just take it a picture, you know, that snapshot in time, you'd find it very confusing. It does have a rhythm and does have a method to it um, uh, as it unfolds uh, 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 going forward. But um, I, I just want to encourage people uh, to work with MEA, uh, work with Maine School Board Management, work with um, Principals uh, Association. They are there every day. They're monitoring issues that are important to the education community, to teachers, to school personnel. And they have a voice with the committee um, and, and, and are able to influence um, what we uh, decide and how we move on things. So, uh, and, and the curriculum directors, uh, their voice is very helpful. We really pay attention to that because uh, we've had a lot of very difficult issues over last two or three years about mandated curriculum. Yeah. And, and um, how that uh, should work and how do we simultaneously uh, give some, re uh, we, we continue to respect local control and at the same time uh, update curricula in a way that is reflective of uh, what's happening in the state of Maine and communities and in the world. So Representative Brennan, if people wanted to uh, find you, contact you, uh, ask you questions or find out who their representatives are that are on the committee, uh, how might they go about doing that? Well, there's a legislative webpage and um, we have legislative email. And we also, there's a, a book <laughs> um, that's What's published. That? What are books? The, the, <laughs> are those still a thing? Um, and they, they have every legislator's uh, email address and, uh, and many legislators have their cell phones uh, also listed. But there, you can also, uh, anybody can call the speaker's office or the clerk's office or the Senate office and leave a message for a legislator. But um, uh, my cell phone is published uh, uh, through the legislative directory. And again, uh, an email is available for every legislator. So uh, any member of the public could just access that uh, email directly directory and send an email uh, to their legislator and uh, they should be able to find their uh, phone number that they could call to get a message uh, through to them as well. Yeah, to see the and to see all the education cultural affairs committee members you can just go to uh, legislature.main.gov and right. then you could just follow the links to committees you can find the uh, education cultural affairs committee then all the representatives and senators are right there. Correct. The best and, way. And then okay. all the the work that we have done since uh, January is also on the education page website. So people can go and see, look at the bills, look at the public Excellent. hearings, look at the public testimony, look at what the decisions were, uh, what the amendments were and what the final draft of things uh, ended up looking like. So one other question we wanna ask is thinking about the 130th, what just passed, is there like one bill or something that stands out as being like really significant or meaningful, impactful uh, that you saw and was a part of getting uh, getting moved forward. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for the question, Matt. And I, I, I think um, I would point to the fact that for the first time in the state's history, we reached fifty five percent funding for K through twelve education, and that <laughs> and that was uh, first passed by the public in two thousand and four. Uh, the legislature at various times have has tried to move in that direction. But uh, Governor Mills and the supplemental budget stepped up and um, uh, got us to 55% funding this year and next year uh, in the state budget. And that makes a tremendous difference uh, to local school districts, 
uh, in terms of having the resources they need to uh, meet essential programs and services and to um, make sure that uh, 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 students have the opportunity to achieve and succeed. And it was an incredible achievement. We were, we were I know I was floored that that, we've been floored for a long time that that hadn't been done and kept kind of the can be kind of kicked and moved around a little bit, but right. to see it finally happening, um, it was one of those moments, I think that a lot of educators and leaders and whatnot, just kind of, you know, shoulders kind of went down <laughs> And okay, there's that. That's something we can maybe stop worrying about. So right, yeah, right. Kudos. Well, well, Representative Brennan, I think I, I I always speak for Julie, but again, thank you so much for taking a little bit of time of out of their out of your incredibly well, busy I, and crazy schedule. I, I again, I can't thank you for having me. I'm really glad that you're um, able to do this podcast and touch on these issues, and. Um, uh, I'd be more than happy uh, next session to come back maybe in the middle of the session and say, uh, here's what we've done for the first month and here's what we might be doing for the last two months and here are some things that uh, people should be paying attention to. Well, well we, will, we, will we will hold you to that and uh, we may be able to come and maybe come up to the, uh, up to the Cross Building and maybe we could head on down to the uh, Cross Cafe and... Mm -hmm. Have, have a little, little snack there. Maybe we'll have a little conversation there and record it that way. They have great coffee, uh, chip selection. They got all that kind of great stuff there. I'm a big fan of the Cross Cafe. Well, I'm, I'm hopeful that we can have that kind of discussion and be past yeah. uh, the pandemic and, and uh, past the virus and uh, uh, be in a way that we can have more uh, in-person contact. Hope so, too. Um, if not, Julie, I'll see you... Um, in November at the uh, Thanksgiving Day race. I think you probably will. <laughs> so uh, if you want to follow us online, you can follow us on Twitter um, at Main Ed Matters. You can also follow me on Twitter. I'm Matt Drewett Card at, at Drewett Card. You can follow Julie at Julie Smythe 33 on Twitter. Or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Main Education Matters. Julie, Representative Brennan, thank you very much for your time. And for all of you listening, thank you. thank you so much. All righty.